Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with COVID and uh, the issues that deal with COVID and what it's brought into our lives. And now, of course, there's the new strain of COVID, the COVID variants. One came out of the UK, or at least that's where we first became aware of it. Another one from South Africa that has appeared in Alberta. There are the vaccines and how quickly they unroll in this country. It will have a lot to do with how Canadians feel about political parties. Daryl Bricker told us that from Ipsos. He'll join us later as well. And uh, let's talk now to Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist, Halton Health in Ontario, professor at the School of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and one of seven prominent Canadians, including infectious diseases specialists and pediatricians, who uh, who wrote a um, a piece that a op-ed piece that appeared in uh, the National Post? Get the children back to class. So we're going to talk to Dr. Rao about that after we have a sort of a general discussion with him about what's going on with uh, COVID, not only in uh, Central Canada. I know you want to hear about what thoughts are in Western Canada as well, and we try to do that. We try to get everybody in on this. Dr. Rao, good to have you back with us. Thanks for taking the time. Hi there. Are we in a better place as far as creating a vaccine barrier between humans and the COVID virus is concerned, or are the variants in the virus a wild card now? Well, we are still in a better place having a vaccine to give. There, at one point, people called it light at the end of the tunnel, and I still maintain that's the case. It'll get better as we get more vaccine available and vaccines that don't have this deep freeze requirement available. So the Pfizer one that was the first out of the box had a very big deep freeze environment where people had to go to the vaccine. Now the vaccine can go to the people who most need it, especially in long-term care. Whether the new variant is going to compromise the efficacy of the vaccine is uncertain. I think we would have seen some signal of that in the UK by now if the UK variant was a problem but it takes a while to watch. Even if it does compromise the efficacy of the vaccine to some degree, if it were to offer a 50% vaccine efficacy in terms of protecting against severe disease in elderly people, that is still a win. So even a more modest result than the 95% we heard about in the press releases is worth something. So I wouldn't lose faith and give up, even if the numbers are more prosaic than they were supposed to be based on press releases. But there's also a possibility that other vaccine types will not be so subject to changes in the vaccine, in, in the strain that is circulating. The first vaccines that have come out are focused on the spike protein, which is what is being modified in these strains that we're hearing about. So maybe other vaccine designs will not be so vulnerable to this. And also the mRNA vaccine technology that is part of the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine is apparently quite readily modifiable, unlike some of the other vaccines. So they might be able to retool it or rechristen the same vaccine. So I, I think it's still light at the end of the tunnel, but a growing tunnel light that you can see if we get more vaccine. Yeah. Well, so, so let's take the positives from that. But at the same time, we hear the daily numbers 
of infections, how the infection rate is going up. We hear the daily numbers of, uh, of, of deaths are, um, caused by COVID. And we have the talk, uh, the daily talk about lockdowns, and now we have the curfew in the province of Quebec. You've challenged the lockdowns, and you've challenged on this program the constant and daily releasing of infection numbers and death numbers. Talk to, the, talk to us about that, please. So one key point I want to make is I don't think the vaccine is going to have an immediate impact on those numbers. It's unfortunately too little, too late, no one's fault, to actually have the vaccine blunt those numbers. I think we're unfortunately facing this full blast, and maybe in a month we'll see the benefit of vaccination in terms of protecting daily death numbers, if at all. Now, as far as what we are reporting, we keep chasing daily case counts. Daily case counts in a 20-year-old population, in a university student population, does not have the same impact as finding 20 cases in a long-term care facility where the death rates are very high. So we need to look more at what's happening at the hospital level and not constantly be spooked by daily case counts. Unfortunately, whether or not governments want to admit it, they keep chasing it. We keep following it like the stock market and talking about it. Then they start pivoting to the percent positive, which is a bit better than daily case counts because daily percent positive cancels out for more people getting tested on one day versus another. And if that percent positive number is going up, it is a marker of there being more community transmission. There is more community transmission, and that's why we see there are more cases in hospital and more deaths. The problem I'm having is that we keep increasing the intensity of lockdowns in many parts of this country, not so much in B.C., but at least in Alberta and Ontario and Quebec and Manitoba, we have intensified our restrictive measures, and we're not getting much return on investment. And the counter-argument is always, if we hadn't done it, it would have been worse. And then the other thing that happens is every time we do something, people say, we have to do this to bring the numbers down. They don't go down. And so then we double down on the efforts, keep those restrictions in place, and add on something new. And it still doesn't work. And the latest descent into folly is the curfew, which is probably not going to make any difference. You're getting that last drop of juice out of the lemon, as another infectious disease specialist said uh, in the city. And what's happening is that we're causing more inconvenience and a new phenomenon of channeling, where you take people and make them shop after work until 8 p.m., and then they have to go home. So you crowd everybody into the shops to do their shopping with the intention of somehow decreasing social interaction and having a counterproductive intervention, an intervention that's not proven to work, that's not necessarily based on science, but it's don't sit there, do something, political reaction. So in your view, are certain provinces and political leaders all in as far as pursuing the least effective solutions to protecting society from COVID-19 is concerned? Are they following each other around? I think there's a copycat phenomenon going on. I, th- I think this is turning into a, something of an ice bucket challenge. It's really scaring me. Like I, I, we've got to start looking at what works, what doesn't work, peel away what works, what doesn't work. Disinfecting every surface outside doesn't really work. It's not how it's spread. Having people wear a mask outdoors, it doesn't work. Um, having people physically distance two meters when they're outside instead of just one meter, it doesn't change things much. Now, doing some things, we can still continue. Let's keep the physical distancing. Let's keep the mass gatherings to a minimum. Let's control capacity in small spaces. Let's have good ventilation. Let's have the, uh, the plexiglass shields. It's fine. Let's have people wear masks indoors for now and slowly peel away what works and what doesn't work. But the more we keep upping the ante, and the worst of this now in to- on top of curfews is closing schools, the more massive harm we cause. Kids may transmit the disease, but they receive more than they transmit. 
preventing kids from getting infection by keeping them at home probably doesn't work because over the Christmas holidays, the positivity rate went up while kids were at home. So now we're going to keep them at home, even though we know that the rates of infection may even go up while they're at home. So what are we really achieving except that we're harming the education of kids? And this is not a minor issue. This is not a one or two week extra time off problem. This is Mm -hmm. a problem that's going to keep extending itself. Every single time we implement a restriction, we get locked into it, we extend it, and we double down on it. I make the analogy with someone who goes skiing out of bounds in Whistler. They keep skiing, and every turn they make, they get deeper and deeper into trouble, and they can't get out of it. The op-ed that uh, appears in uh, the National Post that was written by seven physicians, including our guest, pediatricians and uh, infectious diseases specialists, professors at universities, The headline is, Get the Children Back to Class. We strongly advocate for continuing in-person education across Canada. Here's a couple of lines that really got to me from this op-ed. It is now clear that interrupted school attendance results in immediate and long-term damage to our children and that virtual school attendance is not a suitable replacement for in-person instruction. Other consequences of school closures include worsening mental health, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, suicidality amongst children and teens. Now, kids are going back to school in person in Alberta tomorrow. Not everywhere. It's been set back in other provinces, including Ontario and uh, in Quebec. Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist, Halton Health in Ontario, professor at the University of Toronto School of Medicine and one of the authors of the op-ed. So, in your words, Dr. Rao, how bad is it? What should, what do we have to do, and what's the message of this op-ed? Well, just one little point is Quebec is actually sending their kids back to school, even though they have a curfew. So, Ontario is now the one and only outlier. BC has its kids in school. Alberta is sending them back. So, we are the unfortunate outlier. The key points that come out of this piece is that virtual school, as you said, is not the same as in-person attendance. Uh, as it is, it's hard enough when people, when the kids are at school wearing masks in terms of communication, you know, language development, learning phonation for the young ones, but having them not interacting directly and having them sort of being disciplined on Zoom doesn't work. And there have been metrics showing how far kids can be harmed by this discontinuous education, like losing six months worth of math advancement, losing six months worth of reading development. This is the critical time in, in, in human development when the brains have what they call plasticity. This is where the greatest absorption of knowledge, growth of the brain tissue is going on. When you're not stimulating it at this life phase, it's very serious. There are long-term harms. And we have to start looking at what are the benefits versus the harms. The benefits of keeping kids home from school is to somehow minimally decrease transmission, because there's not much of a return on investment in terms of decrease in transmission. Yes, there's some, but there's not much. So in return for a very small return on investment in terms of decreasing transmission, you're having huge, huge harms. Even some of the most enthusiastic lockdown fans questioned this in the first wave and said, we wouldn't do this again, and we're doing it again. And we're doing it in response to rising case numbers on a daily basis, which as I discussed earlier, is a mistake. It's not what you, we should be watching anyway. So, uh, you know, I think really in the province of Ontario, when we spoke yesterday with the president of the Secondary School Teachers Federation, some of it at the very least, maybe most of it, is a political battle between the unions and the provincial government. 
Uh, that's mm-hmm. a significant significant role player here. But the, the, the long-term effect on kids, particularly the younger ones, is going to be significant, is it not? I mean, the long-term, the extended effect, yeah. regardless of when they go back. Right, but everyone's always using the daily case counts. Doug Ford made reference to how scary the numbers are. I say case numbers be damned. I don't care how high they are. Kids have to get an education. We can't suspend this for the next six months, a year. We can't have a, a generation that lost a year of education. And unfortunately, the people who are the winners are the wealthier people and the more educated people. They can actually do the equivalent of a homeschooling. And if the kids don't pick it up on Zoom, mom and dad are going to help you with trigonometry and have Beethoven symphonies running in the background. That's how my household would have worked out if we had to do this. That's not everybody. There's, there are people who have their kids at home and they have to run a job at the same time. It's incredibly disruptive for the parents. Yeah. at a real day-to-day level. They, so the parents' productivity is harmed. The kids, if they are not following what's going on at school, their discipline now becomes the parents' problem. And if someone has a job situation where they have to go to work, what are the options for those parents? School is, is there too much of a division? I have to ask you this, this on the time we have left. Is there too much of a division within the medical community, or at least among those who are willing to speak out, one side or the other, I think some doctors are scared to speak out because they're viewed as being the equivalent of anti-vaxxers or COVID deniers. There's definitely a shaming and blaming going on. The other issue is that I think people are focusing on only COVID and looking at this only through a COVID lens. We have to look at it both from a other harms perspective, uh, things I talked about. We also have to look at it from an economic perspective, harsh as that sounds. Health is wealth, wealth is health. And we also have to look at it from a mental health perspective and a sustainability perspective. If it's two weeks, it's one thing. If it becomes two months, it gets hard. If it becomes two years, it's unbelievably damaging. And we have to start peeling away at what works and what doesn't work. We also have to start looking at where the cases are happening instead of going after anything and everything. We know that it's happening in closed settings. Essential workers are getting in distribution houses, food preparation. We're encouraging a lot of those industries through lockdowns and having people sit at home and take deliveries. And so we're actually channeling the problem to a new group of people. We have to start asking more questions about what we're doing and why and not just carry on and add on new restrictions. You know, skiing yeah, as you said, it's return of return on investment, isn't it? Really, ultimately, yeah. that's that's what it has to be. Is there again? We have about one minute here, and I hate the clock, but it does it to us. Is there one region of Canada, one province, where you would say they're doing it essentially correctly? Yeah, BC for sure. I would say right now. I, I think not everything they're doing is what I would do, but I'll tell you, of all the provinces, they've not flip flopped and changed the same way we've seen other provinces saying one thing one week another the next week. They haven't bubbled. They haven't tried to close their borders to everyone else. That's not sustainable. And they have not closed schools. And they've even kept restaurants open and some outdoor activities going. But they've canceled the mass gatherings. There's no, no soccer stadiums and hockey games going on. Fine. In Quebec, an 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew went into effect last night. Quebecers must remain in their homes each night during those hours, with few exceptions, until the 8th of February. How are they likely to react and respond, particularly after a week or two of the curfew? We're going to find out. Let me just give you a couple of the curfew rules. Everyone must be home between the hours of 8 to 5, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Violating the curfew means fines from 1000 to $6,000. Police will be out in their cruisers with lights flashing. Grocery stores and corner stores must close by 7.30 p.m. Pharmacies and gas stations are allowed to remain open during the curfew. 
all other aspects of the Quebec lockdown remain in place. Exceptions are health care, essential work, humanitarian reasons, and walking your doggy. Walking your doggy. Jack Jadwab is the executive director of the Association for Canadian Studies. They're based in Montreal. The association has polled Quebecers extensively over the past months on government measures taken to reduce the risk of viral transmission. Other social issues have been also uh, um, polled on by the association. Jack, thank you very much for coming on the program. I guess it's very popular to have a dog in, in Quebec these days. It is very popular. I actually got one at the front of the uh, crisis, so I am able to go out uh, after 8 p.m. Uh, at the request of my dog, actually, to you know, to do what she has to do. Okay. Uh, what does your polling suggest? The majority of Quebec public opinion might be of the curfew, and what what is it now, and what may it be, let's say, uh, day two or the third week of these nightly lockdowns? Any way to project that? It's hard to project what it will uh, look like in terms of support or opposition to the curfew. We did poll on this issue back in November, and actually Quebecers were the most opposed to the idea of a curfew. About uh, one-third of uh, Quebecers uh, uh, didn't like the idea uh, and didn't support it at that time, which was higher than national average, which was one quarter. Uh, Young people in particular didn't like it, and young men in particular didn't like the idea of a curfew. But at this stage, uh, the numbers being what they are and the situation spiraling uh, out of control, I think, in terms of uh, the numbers and the situation in the healthcare centers and hospitals in particular, uh, my sense is that people would be inclined to uh, show more support for the Premier's uh, requirement in, that, in this uh, regard. And the majority of Quebecers, even though Quebecers are most opposed to it, the majority were favorable to the idea of a curfew back in November when the numbers weren't as, uh, as, as high as they are currently. So what was the protest situation like uh, yeah, last night? I understand that in, I think in Quebec City anyway, police did a handout, some fines of around $1,500, $1,000 for the fine, $500 to administer the fines, comes up to 1500 What was it like? Well, there were small groups of people in a couple of cities, uh, in Quebec City and Montreal and Smattering and Sherbrooke, that uh, did go out and protested and were fined. And I think a lot of that, uh, you know, there weren't uh, big numbers at all of people who did so and a lot of the value of finding them i suppose and the media attention directed towards that was to send a message to uh, people across the province that the police mean business when it comes to implementing the curfew do you have a sense that there has to be uh, a return on investment like a significantly declining daily number of covid cases let's say after two weeks of the of the curfew if there's no decline if there's no really noticeable decline and people get started to get irritated because, you know, we have a mental health issue running alongside this COVID issue, the pandemic. If there's no real discernible return on investment, do you think the irritation factor will start to make itself felt? Yeah, I believe there will be an irritation factor if uh, there's no discernible decline in the next few weeks, uh, even though there'll certainly be a call for patience in that regard. And curfews have been uh, tried in other countries, as we know. It was tried in Australia in August, and I think Australia has enjoyed a fair bit of success in terms of its mitigation program against COVID. And France is the area that's getting a lot of attention, the country getting a lot of attention in terms of its uh, curfew. It's hard to say. It depends on what time frame you want to measure against uh, in France in terms of determining whether they've made progress in the number of cases. They still have a fairly large number of cases, better than it was in November when they started the curfew. Uh, But uh, it might not be sufficient if that's the tendency we go towards, uh, which is sort of a moderate decrease in cases, not a substantial one, 
as I said, in, in France's situation. If that's what happens in Quebec, I don't know how much support the curfew will sustain in the longer haul. Mm-hmm. So we did see, and you and I talked about this at the time, we did see some protests, some anti-mask protests in Quebec that featured thousands of people marching in the streets of Montreal and other cities in the province. Uh, is that still an issue, or are these people now largely quiet? What's happened as far as that's concerned? Well, my sense is these people are largely quiet, and we saw that, uh, by contrast, the uh, protests for the curfew were very, very small and uh, something symbolic in terms of the reaction to the protests. Uh, but again, uh, there is that, I would suggest, critical mass, however small of people, who will be watching, and if there is no outcome in terms of the case reduction, uh, that's discernible, as you suggested earlier, uh, then we might see that critical mass of people who are opposed to this idea grow further in the weeks ahead. Yeah, it's like show me, right? The Missouri license plate, show me. Uh, let me see that what uh, that what you're saying is, in fact, fact. And uh, and if that, it, that that doesn't manifest itself, then, then there probably is going to be a reaction. Now, I'm going to be talking with Julius Gray. You're very familiar with Julius, a uh, constitutional lawyer, human rights lawyer in Montreal. And he told me this morning that this move by the Legault government is a charter violation, but now the question is going to be whether or not they can actually substantially justify what they're doing, given the circumstances. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I suspect they'll be able to substantially justify it under the circumstances, given the situation in our hospitals right now. But the issue is, uh, again, will they be able to get compliance in the population? We did do some polling, which got quite a bit of attention uh, in the uh, hol- during the holiday period, which showed that uh, while... of people said they didn't visit with family and friends outside of their homes uh, during that period, as they were supposed to do by law. Uh, 48% say they visited at least once uh, friends or family members outside of their homes. Uh, In in other words, they were not in compliance with what the law required. And even amongst the 50% that did comply with the law, half of them said that they knew someone who visited uh, a friend or family member outside their home. So there's a lot of non-compliance with this, and I suspect we're still going to see people try to find ways of discreetly visiting with family or friends outside of their homes. So what really is uh, important to determine here is whether uh, the measures adopted by the government can ensure compliance, and, and that's a big, big challenge. What do you think, when you look at this particular curfew and these uh, these expectations, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m., you're in your own home, you don't go out. The exceptions, again, going out for a walk with the dog, a person whose presence in the workplace is essential, a person who must obtain the necessary medication following a medical appointment, a person who must go out for a return from a hospital clinic or a dentist's office, and and it goes on, a person who must visit a sick or injured parent, a student who must participate in face-to-face evening classes or go to a laboratory in a recognized school, and there are additional exceptions. I'm looking at these and I'm saying to myself, there's no way around this. If people really want to beat this curfew and, and, and do what they want to do, they'll be able to it's do it. It's going to be challenging, and yesterday the police did stop a number of people out there, and they had letters uh, basically saying that they had the right to be out, and either they were going to work in an essential service. So it will be difficult for the police. And even this other measure, which is effective outside the curfew period during the day, where you can't walk with a friend, for example, in a park, or uh, or even a family member who lives at a different address, uh, is going to be uh, very complex to uh, implement. Yeah. But they also say that if you, and we've seen this in other provinces at certain times with lockdowns, if you live alone, you can still be with another person who lives alone at a different address. So that's always the, the, the writer that seems to be thrown in in all of these situations. Right, presuming you're so, only going to that other home right, yeah. and not going anywhere else. So, again, yeah. these things are going to be extremely complex to 
uh, implement, uh, we're going to need to uh, rely on the compliance of the population and the population understanding the severity of the situation, not a simple right. thing. And we'll see over the next uh, few weeks how that plays itself out. Jack, good talking to you. Thank you very much. What's your dog's name? Uh, Aria. Take Aria for a walk, will you? I will tonight. Joining us from Montreal is one of the city's most prominent human rights and constitutional lawyers, and uh, uh, Julius Gray, and we're going to talk to Mr. Gray about this curfew legislation that was brought in by the Lugo government, 30 days, four weeks, of curfews, 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. Julius, thank you for the time. Is uh, Monsieur Legault, you and I talked about this a bit this morning off the air, he's violating the Charter of Rights and Freedoms with the curfew fundamentally, isn't he? Undoubtedly, but the question is, is it justified under Section 1 of the Charter? I don't think there will be any difficulty establishing a charter violation. Uh, but the charter is not uh, uh, a prison where if you, know, if you technically violate it, uh, whatever the government or, or anybody else wants to do is void. There are reasonable limitations in the text of the charter itself, and the Quebec charter is the same. Um, and the real question here is, uh, are the measures... Uh, do they fall within reasonable limitations necessary in a free and democratic society? So how, if, you, if you were arguing in court against this particular curfew, and no doubt they did their homework and they uh, assessed and addressed what, you and I've, what you've just been telling us before they came forward with this curfew, but if you were arguing it against, against it in court, what would your fundamental argument be? Well, my fundamental argument would be that it's not proportionate. I suppose uh, I, I don't agree with this argument, but I, I, I think it probably is saved by Section 1. But as a theoretical question, I guess you'd get an expert to say there's no connection between a curfew and uh, the uh, uh, progress of the epidemic, and uh, therefore it's not the, 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 there's no uh, a rational reason for having one, and it's certainly not the minimal thing you can do in order to um, uh, halt the spread of the virus. That would be the argument. I think it's incorrect. I think uh, while it's not a perfect means and while we can't guarantee that it's an effective uh, thing, it's the sort of thing that governments can do. And you know, remember, the governments have done more drastic things at times. Um, in Quebec, uh, in, uh, not only in 1970, that was before the Charter, but uh, during the ice storm some 20 years ago, 22 years ago, 23 years ago, um, Premier Bouchard uh, was seriously contemplating evacuating Montreal uh, because the water was going bad. And I think he would have got away with it. I think uh, the, the, the effect of uh, un, unusable water is sufficient to do it. In Fort McMurray, there was uh, areas that were evacuated and you don't have much choice about leaving when uh, the fire is approaching. So I think... Uh, a, a curfew at night, although it may not be effective, I agree, but it, it's within uh, the range. Now, there are a few other things that would have to be looked at. Are the penalties cruel and unusual? Obviously, if they said you're going to get five years in prison, it wouldn't pass muster. It's one to 6,000. 6,000 is a steep fine, but then on the other hand, the courts would, I presume, only give the maximum in the case of repeat offenders or somebody who's particularly contumacious. I would hope so. Um, the, uh, are there necessary exceptions? Because you obviously can't stop people from going to 
hospital or, or to the pharmacy uh, or even from walking their dog. Well, uh, at least on the hospital and pharmacy side, if you didn't provide the exceptions, I think people could use the defense of necessity, but uh, they did provide them. Uh, now, of course, you can't foresee every justifiable emergency, and the defense of necessity is still open if the police were to turn out to be completely uh, deaf to um, a serious uh, ground uh, for getting out of the house. I'm thinking, for instance, of problems like uh, uh, very small places and an attack of claustrophobia or something of that right. sort. Um, the, uh, uh, so you have that. Uh, they did provide for, for the exceptions. And it's, it's not 23 hours out of 24. They're not creating curfews inside the home. You could only stay in the basement and not go up. Uh, that would be an invasion of privacy. So in the end... Well, you know, if, if I had to argue it, I'd argue that it's not proportionate, it's not reasonable. I would guess that the government would win this battle, um, uh, except for those invidious cases. Uh, I would also add that if it were to turn out that there's any form of profiling, racial, gender, sexual orientation, uh, there would be uh, action under the Charter and successful action. Okay, I have this question, and I asked our last guest from Montreal about this as well. It, and, and it has broader implication, or maybe application, if other governments in Canada decide to engage a curfew. If the lockdowns and curfews, or curfew one at a time, if they don't deliver a measurable return on investment, in other words, if these measures don't significantly reduce infection numbers, how might that turn out? Well, I suppose raising something that would be very interesting. If after a year, the curfew turned out, or three months or four months, turned out to be completely useless, then the argument under the Charter that there is no connection between it and the pandemic would be a tempting one. Somebody could say that at one point we thought this was so, uh, but now it is clear that it's simply an invasion of people's rights. Mm -hmm. I actually think the uh, it'd be rather difficult to prove. I think one thing the curfew will do is prevent those uh, adolescent or young adult parties that you know I used to see myself in the park near my house, and that that, that will at least slightly yeah. reduce the rate of infection. But if it Julius, I can't, I can't imagine how people would feel if there were a, a curfew for three or four months. I'm sure there would be a pushback on that. Yes, in the thirty seconds we have here, is, is the curfew is the sorry? After a certain amount of time, there would be a pushback, if, unless, yeah. unless it was shown to be the only thing that worked. Otherwise, yeah. there would be a pushback. But this is the curfew the, the final card a government can play without exponentially treading on its citizens' rights? I think the government should uh, uh, be very careful. And they should invade rights as little as possible. For instance, I think they should allow people the option of not going to sending their children to school. I think they should be uh, able to. Uh, uh, they, they should put as few restrictions at all times as you can. Uh, the curfew itself, for a period, short period of time, uh, and uh, uh, without really drastic consequences. Uh, does not appear to be the more most horrendous thing they can do. Okay. But, but there is one thing to be said about Quebec. The Quebec yeah. government has turned out to be uh, quite autocratic about the way it deals with the state. Right. Julius, I'm sorry, but I, I do have to stop because 
we're out of time. But I appreciate you coming on. It's a, it's a new experience for most of us in this country looking at Quebec. We're looking to talk with Eric Cam, Dr. Eric Cam, Professor of Economics, Macroeconomics at Ryerson University. So I read an article by Mohamed El Arian, the president of Queen's College at Cambridge University, titled, New COVID Variant Will Increase Stress on Global Economy and Widen Inequality. You read it as well. What do you hear Dr. El Arian say, and do you agree? Well, I, I do agree. I mean, it's nice to actually read an article that's not um rosy um and again i understand the desire for people to read anything about the economy that says we're going to be okay we're going to be okay in the long run this too shall pass and any other trite expression for um the long run has to be better than the short run but to me um the article if i may really expounded on what i think are uh, with all due respect to al gore what I think are, are three very, very inconvenient truths right now. And uh, I'll just state them, and then if you want, we can dive into any sure. one, two, or three, which is, sure. number one, economic inequality is going to worsen before it gets better. Number two, at some point, we have to stop uh, um, thinking that there's a trade-off between social and economic well-being. And number three, we have got to stop believing that there is some magic public sector solution to this problem. And I really think these are the inconvenient truths that people don't want to discuss, but I think each of them in order um, speaks volumes for where we are right now. Okay, Professor Cam, let me get you just interrupt for a second. Ask the studio to get that line. I did ask Premier Ford to call, so you never know. So grab the line and find out. That's what those flashing lights are about. You never know. I wouldn't be insulted to be bumped for the premier. No, he wouldn't be bumped. I'd have you on, too. So well, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> I'm going nowhere. <laughs> you are so going somewhere. So carry on, please, with the, with the three items that matter here. Well, okay. So, again, we, yes, we read the same article, and it was, it was well written about sort of where we are right now and trying to get people just to understand the severity. Um, and I know that that's a hard thing. I know that the truth is difficult to understand and digest. And the reason I know this is thanks to your show, I myself am getting a lot of emails at ericam at ryerson.ca and a lot of uh, tweets uh, or Twitters, depending on what generation you are, um, saying things are not that bad. And a couple of people have just absolutely implored me not to go on your show and tell the world the sky is falling. But I like the article because it said that we are not in a good place right now. And so uh, while we're waiting for Premier Ford to get back to us, um, what I said was it really, to me, illuminated three, um, three, three statistics about where we are today. And the first one is the a very unfortunate question of economic inequality, right? Uh, it's very popular yes. to embrace that technological change um, creates more jobs and the winners win more than the losers lose. And it's true that from economic hardship, there tends to be some positive uh, technological change, and there is uh, some shifting in sectors across the economy. The problem is, is that we're in a place right now where sectoral shifts are going to leave certain groups without jobs and facing serious obstacles to finding new employment. And yeah. all that's going to do is cause declines in employment and real wages. So 
put put um, put simply, technological change is wonderful. It's spurned on by problems, but the burden of that technological change is suffered disproportionately by disadvantaged segments of our society. Right. Number two, um, we've got to reject this trade-off. People think that there is some sort of trade-off between social and economic goals. And I would argue, and I haven't read this yet, but I've, I would argue that human well-being, public health, is needed for economic growth. But the reverse is true, too, and I've said this on your show, and I know you agree. We need economic health for, for some sort of human well-being. And, and, and I think that low levels of inequality may make an economy less vulnerable. And so the government's providing us CERB and EI and all of these things in sort of a mirage, if I can say that. And it's not a mirage to the people receiving it, but it's a mirage that it's maintaining these relationships between worker and employee. And that's just not the truth. Um, There is no statistic out there now saying that CERB is going to generate growth. CERB is a stopgap. And that's all it is. And and this country needs more resiliency and it needs more policies that are going to encourage some economic growth rather than strictly debt financing. In other words, helicopter drops of money to get where we are. And I guess that's my long-winded way of saying if you add up number one and number two, we get to that there is going to be no public sector solution. There is going to be no single private sector solution. And the sectors are going to have to do what they have trouble doing, which is working together to somehow get us through this and then out of this in a good position. And and I'll take a a breath in a second, but as you and I have said before, economic well-being isn't just something you read about in a textbook. What is going to be left for people coming out of COVID if they don't have jobs and they don't have businesses? I would argue... And I would ask people to think about, as a professor, that's all I ever try to do, isn't economic health and public health interrelated? Yeah, very definitely. And, and economic health, I, too often we use the word economy. And, and somebody sent me an email a couple of days ago and said, when you use the word economy, it's all-encompassing. And it starts to sound like big, you know, it's too big for people to get the wrap their heads around. And I understood what that, what that person was writing because it really is a, 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 a it's a relatively small word, but it, the, the size of the, of the issue is massive. And you break it down into component parts, as you've just done, health, uh, employment, uh, the, the ability to, to, you know, to, to generate funds, to raise taxes. You know, when, when 200,000 small businesses, if 200,000 small businesses go out of existence in this country, there's a significant tax base that has been lost. Not only that, but you have more than a million jobs that have been compromised. And those people are not going to be paying taxes the way they were, nor will they be buying the way they were. It's the, it's the, it's the domino or the snowball. It's, maybe it's both that they pick up speed. The dominoes drop, the snowball picks up speed. And at the end, everything is not as it should be. I've made it more complicated than I need to. Uh, so, Professor, let me ask you about a couple of things here and uh, and, and phrases that we hear in, in media, uh, like potential output. Don't pick up on that. What, what are you talking about? Potential output, it's actually, I'm glad you asked that because you brought up what is the economy. And yeah. if I can um, maybe make people's lives a little bit uh, less stressful, 
um, they may think that it's it's kind of this great big unimaginable thing, hard to uh, around which to wrap your head. But really, it, it isn't. It, it is just the interaction of four actors. Very quickly, it's it's people, it's businesses, it's government, and it's the rest of the world. And where do those actors play? Well, they play in in a sense three sandboxes: factor markets, where they where they have to buy land, labor, capital. Uh, goods markets, where they buy goods and services, and financial markets, where they um, where they deal in the demand and supply of dollars and bonds. And so that really, to me, that's what the economy is. It's those four players who play in three sandboxes, and you have to hope the players in the sandboxes uh, play well together, or else you get distress like you're seeing today. As to your question, it's an excellent one, because everyone's heard of of gross domestic product. Most people have heard of GDP, and on your show I've said it's consumption plus investment plus government spending. It's all the ways of spending if you add them up together, and this is the way you take a score or a picture of the economy. Potential output is one level. It is, it is in a sense, a best-case scenario. What could the economy do? Where could it be um, if we had full capacity of our inputs? What if land, labor, and capital were fully employed? And you say, well, that's a dream. Of course, it's a dream, but it, it gives you a, a number and it gives you, in a sense, a, a target. Governments like that number because it gives you what are the uh, pressures on inflation. Consumers like that number because they let us figure out what's the income we're going to need if we're going to spend or save or borrow or, or pay down debt. And one of the big problems that I haven't seen people discussing in this downturn is what is the effect on potential output not just output we know we're doing poorly that's not news but if you take the best case scenario what can the economy hope to do they're estimating right now that it could be down by 70 billion dollars by the end of 2022 in canada and that's a huge huge number so the answer to your question and by the way there's lots of factors driving that um and, and by the way, you brought up the, really the most important one, which is the supply side right now. We are having, we're getting a pounding on the uncertainty of our oil sector and our energy sector, and there's no need for it. But maybe that could be a whole other phone call. But when you put the demand side together, that we have too many discouraged workers who are unemployed, and the supply side to get, uh, together, that we have productivity issues, and we have resource issues. It just basically is saying, and I'm glad you brought it up for your listeners, what the economy can hope to do in a best-case perfect world scenario is going down in unprecedented numbers. And that's as scary as how are we doing. Yeah. So uh, as the neophyte in these discussions, and uh, that's me, uh, when you say $70 billion drop in the economy, and that's a big number, can you provide those of us who are trying to wrap our heads around these many numbers that start with the with billions, and now we're talking about a $70 billion drop in our economy, what's the context here? How do we relate to that as individual Canadians? I would say that take your average paycheck and start deducting 3% a week but not 3% a week today, and then it stays there. Take 3% a week off your paycheck this week, and then 3% next week, 3% the week after, and see Ouch. how you're doing in a few months. And that's where the Canadian economy is today. We are, we are, are, it's not just that we're decreasing, but we are 
decreasing at an increasing rate. And so it doesn't matter if it's a person and their paycheck or a, or a country. Um, the direction is wrong, and the speed and the magnitude is is wrong. It's just a it's a perfect storm of wrong right now. With apologies to my to my um, loyal three or four people that email me every week to say that I'm being too negative, but that's where we are. You're not negative at all, and I really appreciate you coming on the program, as do so many people who send me emails, and you've seen the Twitter activity, but I get so many emails from people saying, when are you going to have Professor Cam back on, hopefully next weekend? So we're going to keep on bothering you. Um, I love it. Call me anytime, and as we say in the business, uh, you demand, I supply. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 